Welcome to the Grok Science Show. I'm Forrest Gordon. And I'm Joanna Rowell. Our guest today is University of Oxford developmental neuropsychologist Dorothy Bishop. Dr. Bishop studies a developmental condition called specific language impairment, and she runs a popular science blog, dvb.blogspot.com. I heard about Dr. Bishop because of an excellent lecture she gave on how brain scanning techniques are used to study human developmental disorders like dyslexia and specific language impairment. I've heard of dyslexia and other developmental disorders like autism, but I'd never heard about specific language impairment. I don't know what that is. Well, let's let Dr. Bishop explain. It's, it's a bit of a Cinderella subject, really, because um, I think I find that if I talk to people, most people know what um, dyslexia is, most people know what autism is. Mm-hmm. And it, it, specific language impairment is, is closely related to those two, but it, it's a condition that diagnosing you have a child who who has difficulty learning to talk or to understand what other people say for no obvious reason. So in, it's like dyslexia, only dyslexia focuses more on reading, children mm-hmm. reading problems but nobody quite knows why. With specific language impairment, you've got a child who's actually got difficulty learning initially just to talk in their native language um, and nobody quite knows why. It's not, it's not caused by any syndrome or any general intellectual handicap or hearing loss, um, they're physically quite normal so they should be able to talk and yet they just sort of don't find it as easy as most children do. And it often leads on to having reading problems in addition, so this is why I said there's a lot of overlap really and sometimes the boundaries with dyslexia are quite hard to find. But um, a child with specific language impairment would be more likely to be seen by a speech language pathologist. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, probably at quite an early age. And then the boundaries with autism are also quite hard to define because with autism, the children also have problems with language and comprehension um, and, and uh, things like that. But typically the difference would be that in autism you've got a broader range of difficulties. So specific language impairment is when a child has a hard time learning their native language but doesn't have any of the behavioral issues associated with developmental disorders like autism. Right. And many neuroscientists are interested in studying the brains of children with developmental disorders to better understand and treat these conditions. For example, they're asking how are the brains of children with, say, dyslexia different from the brains of children that learn to read at an average rate? And that raises a difficult and tricky and interesting question. How do you study children's brains? Well, we're living in an age of brain imaging. 
The CT, or computed tomography scanner, uses X-rays and was invented in the 1970s. Since then, we have functional mag magnetic resonance imaging, fMRI, which measures changes in blood flow and oxygenation. Electroencephalography, EEG, which measures the brain's electric currents. Positron emission tomography, which uses low doses of radioactivity. In other words, there are a lot of different ways. <laughs> right. Maybe we should let Dr. Bishop tell us more about this. Um, yes. I think, um, well, there's a whole load of things that are being used with uh, the sort of child population that I work with, um, but mainly functional magnetic resonance imaging. So that is uh, looking at uh, which regions of the brain become activated when you're doing a particular sort of path. Um, but there's other things like structural um, imaging, just looking at the relative size of different brain regions and the relative uh, volumes of grey and white matter. Um, and then there's other technologies. I, I've been involved in um, elect uh, what, what would be called EEG or ERP, event-related potential, which you're, where you're measuring the electrical activity of firing neurons in the brain. And again, you're really mainly interested in how this changes as somebody does a particular task. We use another method in our lab, um, which is fairly basic, called uh, functional transcranial doctor which um, is really just measuring the blood flow, the relative blood flow to the two sides of the brain. And that's useful if you just want to see if the left side feels more than the right. Mm. And again, you see, again, you're mainly interested in, in things that are actually reflecting the activity in the brain. Um, but sometimes you're interested in looking at different structures in the brain regardless of the activity. But those are the two main things that people are mainly focused on. So, more than ever, we are able to study a living, functional, functioning human brain. But these results are sometimes hard to interpret. To illustrate this, let's perform a thought experiment. Let's say that you would invent a behavioral treatment called intervention read-a-lot that That's you think will help children with reading disabilities. It sounds like a kind of fun uh, treatment. Yeah, intervention read-a-lot. You could totally sing that. Read-a-lot, read-a-lot. Anyways. Okay, let's get back to the experiment here. So you take a bunch of children, with and without the disability, and you scan their brains. These children then participate in your program, intervention read a lot, over the course of a period of several weeks or months or whatever. And then you scan their brains again after intervention read a lot, and what you see is you see this dramatic, statistically significant increase in the brain activity of the disabled children. Even more striking is that these brain scan results now closely resemble those of the control children. So, Forrest, what would you conclude from this? Well, you might conclude, or I might conclude, that intervention read-a-lot has changed the child's brain, making them read better. Okay, but okay, even if their brains have changed over the course of intervention read-a-lot, is it necessarily due to the actual intervention itself? Hmm. Maybe not. It might be due to maturation, that brains change as we age, or it might just be a practice effect where the child gets better at the task the more they do it. Right. And there's other ways you can be tricked by this data, including regression to the mean. And, of course, we can never forget the placebo effect. It's my favorite effect. Dr. <laughs> Bishop, Dr. Bishop calls these four effects, maturation, practice, regression to the mean, and placebo, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Ooh. As far as intervention goes, um, if you've got a child who's got a condition like uh, a reading problem, dyslexia, something like that, there's lots and lots of people out there who will be offering interventions that they, they suggest can help. Um, 
And quite often the evidence that they produce is to show that uh, before the intervention, the child gets a really score at a certain level, then after the intervention it's higher. Uh, and that looks impressive, except that you do have these difficulties, which I think probably are the horse of the apocalypse, which is things like the fact that the child is just getting older and, you know, so I, I think one of the things I suggested is, is that your shoe size might increase between before you have the treatment and after you have the treatment, but it doesn't mean the treatment has made your feet grow. Right. Um, and you can also get effective practice, um, so that if you've done a task once and you do it again, it depends on the task, but sometimes you see big, big practice effects. There's some sort of rather fancy statistical effects that you can get just by selecting somebody who's poor at the first time you test and they're more likely to be a bit better the next time you see them just because men aren't terribly reliable. Now these are all things that we know about in terms of um, interventions. Uh, it's known in medical research, if you know you're doing drug classes and things, that these are things you have to worry about. But I, what I'm trying to argue is that these are the sort of things that also we need to worry about when we're doing studies where we're trying to say, you know, oh, we might want to change the child's brain in some way. Mm. Because with brain scanning and things, you can also get effects of maturation. You can get effects that come along because you've done the task before. Right. And you, you, you also can just get random fluctuations. Um, so because it's a picture of the brain, we think, oh, you know, it's something much more real, maybe, than a test score. Actually, um, you know, you do the same thing with a child on two different occasions, you don't get exactly the same result. There's all sorts of situational factors that may change it. So I think we have to be particularly careful, and if we're going to do, uh, use brain measurements to try and infer whether the treatments work, then we need to be really very careful to control for an awful lot of things that people often don't think about. You know, it's funny that when we look at a picture of a brain scan, we automatically think, Science! It's a brain and it's fancy. It must be true. <laughs> but really, brain scans are measuring things like blood flow and oxygen reuptake. It's easy to infer too much from these results. Along those lines, one fun game you can play involves Googling the phrase brain scans show. And I actually do that. I mean, I, I was <laughs> the other day I was Googling brain scans show and uh, Google suggested autocomplete and first links. Hits that include brain scans show rejection really hurts. And mm. Your dog really listens to you, brain scans show. Mm. Right. Um, Dr. Bishop has played this game as well. Well, uh, people seem to believe brain scans more than anything else because it's a picture of a brain doing something. Um, so you get these hilarious headlines, mainly from the, the newspapers. Um, but there was a wonderful one that said, I think, something like, brain, show, brain scans show that married love can laugh. <laughs> and uh, you sort of think, well, do you really need a brain scan to show that? And uh, how do you know that the brain scan is showing that? Um, and it, it's really just, you know, that somebody finds that the activation on a brain scan, I don't know, is similar in younger couples and older couples, and then they say, well, marry love and love. And there are other ones about, you know, that people believing that a brain scan is telling you uh, that your feelings are real as opposed to fake. Um, and this sort of thing is, all, is a bit weird when you really think about it, because it, it's not that the brain, the brain scan is really just showing you that there's blood running around the brain, or there's oxygen uptake, or, or electrical activity, but it, it can't really show you what the person is thinking or feeling. You can make inferences about that, but um, 
we're really sort of translating with these images, which look really fancy, you know, the big red blob on the brain, all the brain's doing something. Hmm. We forget that this is really just a, a measurement, and sometimes not a very accurate measurement of activity in the brain. So um, I think we're a bit too captivated by it, although it's wonderful new technology that we now have, which is all sorts of things before. I think we're running before we can walk sometimes to do it. This reminds me of that now infamous study with the dead salmon. I know that study. I think it's the one where they put a dead salmon in the brain scanner, showed it pictures of human faces, and got a statistically significant result. Right, suggesting that the brain of the dead salmon was active. That's not the only interpretation. Alien fish ghosts. Well, regardless, it really illustrates the dangers of false positives. Yes. <laughs> Well, that that created a, uh, that that irritated a lot of brain scientists who said it was just silly. But uh, <laughs> it, it really made the point that if if you um, you know do enough analyses on something and pick sort of all sorts of different ways, you will always see something. Um, of course, properly reputable brain scientists do make corrections for those sorts of things. But it, it, it's still the case that. It, it, we really have almost, sometimes we feel we've got too much information coming out of brain cells because there's so much information that you can always find something if you compare two conditions. And the good scientists will realize that you have to be quite scrupulous in, in really making corrections for this and taking into account the fact that you might just be seeing things that are occurring by chance. Mm -hmm. It's very, very tempting to, again, um, you know, analyze everything and then pull out the things that look exciting. And I think it, there's growing awareness that the field is in a bit of trouble because of this. You know, there's maybe, you know, quite a lot of the results that are out there not being as robust as, as we might think they are. I'd never thought about it before, but I wonder what kind of dreams the dead salmon has. They probably dream about the long lost spawning grounds or something like that. <laughs> probably. Probably not the inside of an fMRI machine. Yeah. But fish aside, what I wonder is why we as a society are so easily seduced by neurological data. I mean, it, it still excites me when I do studies um, of the brain and you get somebody in either a brain scanner. I don't do much with brain scanning, but I have colleagues who do. But I do do stuff with these, some of these other methods. Um, and, you know, when you see this electrical activity, every time it goes deep, you see a little bump in a particular region of the brain. You think, oh, wow, my brain that. <laughs> And there's a the same thing which of course your brain's doing something. If it wasn't, you wouldn't hear anything and you, you know, you wouldn't get a function. But I think it is just the, the directness and the visual images that are often what really capture people's attention. And they are very fantastic and wonderful. But I think that we sometimes sort of lose our critical faculty because we get so excited by these pictures that we can get. Well, let's move on a little bit from the allure of neuroscience and get back to our thought experiment where we were using intervention read a lot to read help lot. kids <clears throat> I don't get to repeat it? Well, okay. 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 <laughs> <laughs> well, we're using intervention read a lot to help kids with reading disabilities The brain scan in that case wasn't really helpful in determining whether our treatment worked Right, and our results were very tricky to interpret Definitely Dr. Bishop mentioned that it makes a lot more sense to test the usefulness of interventions like intervention read a lot using behavioral tests. In other words, if you're trying to teach a child to read better, wouldn't it make sense to test whether their reading proved after the intervention? Makes sense to me. Right. 
But for many real interventions that are out there, rigorous behavior testing has not been done. My feeling is that our priority would be doing that uh, rather than sort of rushing into very expensive brain scanning studies, which are really hard to do when you're putting children in brain scanners and so on. It's not a trivial undertaking. Uh, it costs a lot of money, and we have, like Herbie Stewart, this big scary machine. Well, I think there may be a place for that at some point, but people are doing it with interventions that we don't even know if they work or not. So I think let's find out if they work first and then start working out what's going on in the brain. Okay, I'm convinced. We might as well see if Intervention Read A Lot helps children read better before we start putting them in the brain scanner. If only for the reason that we don't want our grant money to run out. <laughs> I think it's too late for that. <laughs> but are interventions, uh, like Read A Lot, the only way to help children with disabilities or patients with strokes? Well, Dr. Bishop mentioned that there are some promising science fiction-like techniques, although these are still in very early stages. These include things like smart drugs and brain stimulation. Where neuroscience really potentially has a role is that there are methods that you could use to um, actually change the brain, but these, of course, are you know, quite scary sometimes. So, uh, yes, there are smart drugs. I mean, already it's the case that uh, a lot of kids with ADHD will have bigger stimulants, and we know that this can improve performance in some ways, although certainly here in the UK there's also quite a lot of concern about this number of children that are getting medicated and, you know, what long-term consequences are. But it is one way you can certainly change uh, the level of activation in particular brain region. Uh, brain stimulation is, is very topical now and is very new, and um, it involves putting just a very weak electrical current through the brain. It sounds terrifying. Uh, but you barely feel it. It's very, very different from, you know, the things that people think of as like electrical shock treatment, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had it done to me just to sort of check that yeah. <laughs> what it's like. And you, you, so you just have this pad on your head and you actually can um, put a, this chance you, you might feel a slight feeling or nothing at all. And there is interest that what you're doing is affecting the level of the neurotransmitters that help the um, neurons fire and, and, and connect with one another um, by just upping that uh, level of, of current slightly. Because um, I, I think it may have potential, but I suspect at the end of the day it might have potential, but perhaps be more limited than we imagine. But That's pretty cool. Maybe one day we'll be able to have a thinking cap to help us have really deep, profound thoughts. Oh, that reminds me. Okay, hold on. Zap, zap, zap. Excellent. Now that I've improved my cognitive abilities using brain stimulation, I'm now able to determine that it's time to end the show. Well, wow. <laughs> uh, those smart drugs I took earlier must be working because I agree. And if you want to hear more, you can find our website at grox.net. You can also find episodes on iTunes, archive.org, and prx.org. We're also on Facebook and Twitter, so look for us there. Thanks to all of our listeners from everyone here at Grox, including Frank Ling, Charles Lee, Elise Kovic, Joanna Rao, and myself, Forrest Goonan. Have a great week. Keep on grokking.
What was that about? The alien fish ghost thing? Well, I mean, the, the salmon's dead. <laughs> so it's 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 a uh, it's a ghost, and it, the salmon's a fish, so it's a fish ghost. And I just I just I just uh, I, the ancient aliens guy you know, with the with the hair. I, I mean, was just it's, it's it's pretty weak. It, it being it's it's definitely on par with my uh, brain stimulation thinking cap joke. But the, the zaps could have been more intense. I, mean, I was well, I was, was expecting know, more than I'm zap. I'm not good at zap. zapping. And oh, cr- we're on the air. Oh well. Oh hey, welcome back to the Grok Science Show. Uh, we have some. We're going to be back in a little, just a minute. We have a symphony of science song to hold you over until we're back again. We're all connected to each other, biologically, to the earth, chemically to the rest of the universe atomically. I think nature's imagination is so much greater than man's. He's never gonna let us relax, 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 relax. We live in an in-between universe where things change all right, but according to patterns, rules, or as we call them, laws of nature. I'm this guy standing on a planet. Really, I'm just a speck. I'm just a speck compared with a star. The planet is just another speck To think about all of this To think about the vast emptiness of space There's billions and billions of stars Billions and billions of specks The beauty of a living thing is not the atoms that go into it But the way those atoms are put together The cosmos is also within us We're made of star stuff And we are away Across the sea of space, the stars are other suns. We have traveled this way before, and there is much to be learned. We're all connected to each other, biologically, to the Earth, chemically, to the rest of the universe, atomically. Find it elevating and exhilarating to discover that we live in a universe which permits the evolution of molecular machines as intricate and subtle as we. I know that the molecules in my body are traceable to phenomena in the cosmos. That makes me want to grab people in the street and say, have you heard this? The beauty of a living thing is not the atoms that go into it, but the way those atoms are put together. The cosmos is also within us. We're made of star stuff. We are away from the cosmos to know itself. waves all over in space, which is the light bouncing around the room, going from one thing to the other, and it's all really there, really, really there, but you gotta stop and think about it, about the complexity, and really get the pleasure, it's all really there, really, really there, the inconceivable nature of nature, to think about all of this. To think about the vast emptiness of space There's billions and billions 
billions of stars, billions and billions of specks. The beauty of a living thing is not the atoms that go into it, but the way those atoms are put together. The cosmos is also within us. We're made of dark stuff. We are away from the cosmos to know itself across. The sea of space, the stars, our other sun. We've traveled this way before, and there is much to be learned.